Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Our first winter storm packing a punch. Were developers tipped off about the opening of the Greenbelt lands? Canada's cannabis tourism industry could be ready to explode. Russia is expected to escalate its offensive in Ukraine. Millions of species are being cataloged by researchers. And will Avatar 2 be as good as the original? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Last of wintry weather is hitting our city and many other places, including the GTHA in the Golden Horseshoe area. How bad is it going to be at the height of this storm? Well, let's ask the experts. Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell joins us once again here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Anthony, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning to you. All right. How is it looking out there? Well, uh, it's, uh, yeah, you mentioned the wind, uh, the rain, the freezing rain. Uh, We're sitting now just below zero in uh, most areas. Once you get up towards uh, Mississauga and Toronto, it's actually a degree or two above freezing. So that makes all the difference between icing or just a, a regular wet commute in what is going to happen in the next few hours is we're going to see uh, these winds continue 40 gusting to 70 kilometers per hour but we're also going to get a transition back to a heavy wet snow and the timing is very important because if it happens earlier you end up with more accumulation if it delays a little bit you'll have more freezing rain and that's not what we want to see and we don't want to see ice followed by a coating of snow because that just makes everything a nightmare on the roads and sidewalks. It looks like that's where we're going, though, because the temperature here in Hamilton is minus one. It feels like minus nine with a wind chill. But with the snow on the way, that could provide pretty tricky uh, for, for commuters. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And that's the concern. The fact that it, it's starting during the morning rush and it's going to continue for much of the day. Uh, I do expect that temperature to climb will be this afternoon just above freezing. So uh, hopefully that that helps to get some traction out there. It helps the plows get the upper hand. But it's the rate, the rate of precipitation that is something. It, it's a very um, <laughs> the beginning wave of snow and, and freezing rain is where this storm is at. And then we're just going to see lighter amounts of even drizzle mixed with flurries overnight tonight and into early Friday morning. But really, it's the next few hours that are, are of most concern. If, if we look at the radar and, and keep an eye on that temperature, which, as you mentioned, is still below freezing. The ground also is extra cold because it's been chilly the last couple of days. So ice will, will build up. And then when you have those winds, we may even see some some sporadic uh, power outages as well. The latest forecast that we had was that the snow was probably going to start in and around the noon hour. Is that still the case? I think it'll be a little bit earlier. It seems like this... Uh, this system is about two hours ahead of where we thought it would be yesterday. Uh, that may actually be good news because you have an earlier onset. More of it might fall in the form of, of rain mixed with with snow and maybe less ice. So we'll keep an eye on, on that for sure. Once you get up into the Halton Hills and, and Milton, areas north of Highway 401, this is where elevation plays a role and, and we'll see more snow, maybe 5 to 15 centimeters on top of, of whatever icing is occurring now. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist with Global News, as we talk about the first wintry weather of the winter season that has hit our area. Where is all this coming from? Well, it's <laughs> looking at the weather maps, it, it's where where is it not coming from? Because it is such a large system that spans 
right back to Saskatchewan right now in Canada and then all the way south to the Gulf Coast where they've had a nightmare couple of days with tornado outbreaks and uh, even last night a tornado going through downtown New Orleans. So uh, today it's Florida's turn in the south and all of that moisture is streaming up from the Gulf of Mexico up into this colder air that uh, is in place around southern Ontario. So it's just a, a massive storm and it's redeveloping now on the east coast what we call a secondary low or a coastal storm that takes over and that plays an important role for us because that as the energy transfers to the coast will lead to more cold air getting stuck here and that's why we're having freezing rain and why we're expecting this transition to snow uh, when within the next few hours yeah, this is a massive system, as you mentioned, from Saskatchewan stretching all the way across into Ontario and Michigan, obviously, then all the way down the eastern U.S. seaboard. Is is that rare for a system to be that big? They do occur. They, they occur a couple of times every single winter in particular when you have these, these large troughs that basically encompass such a, such a massive chunk of North America. We may get a, a repeat performance a week from now, and then it starts to become, okay, this is holiday travel season. People are, are shopping. They're trying to get to family and friends. Uh, and the difference next week is that there is a lot of cold air on the weather map. So we're, we're in potentially for, for another major storm and this time around I think it'll be more snow so there's a lot to to look forward to if you're a kid wanting a white Christmas and if you are maybe uh, somebody who has to travel just keep an eye on on your weather app and of course listen to to our broadcast because uh, it's it's going to be an interesting stretch Uh, a lot of cold that we haven't seen in past years normally it's a mild weather pattern heading into Christmas the exact opposite this year you can get uh, the latest greatest by following Anthony on Twitter as well, at Anthony Farnell. Check him out on Global News at 530 and 6. Anthony, appreciate the time. Stay safe out there. Thanks for having me on. That is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. And we'll have the latest greatest on your drive to and from work later on today as well. Tune it here or keep it right here on 900 CHML for those latest updates. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. Well, we know how that has changed. Environmental Defense and Democracy Watch calling on the OPP to look into whether insider information was leaked to developers before some greenbelt lands were opened up for development as part of the Ford government's housing plan. Where there's smoke, there's some fire, we think. Tim Gray is the Executive Director of Environmental Defense and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tim, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. What has uh, prompted this request to the OPP? Yes. Well, as you mentioned, the you know the pro- province is proposing to take 7,400 acres out of the green belt um, after promising not to do that. But what's uh, particularly concerning, uh, in addition to the fact that we don't need the green belt to solve the housing problem, is the fact that. Uh, many of the people that purchased lands um, did so quite recently before the announcement uh, to open the Greenbelt. 
And of course, uh, it wouldn't make any sense really to buy land for uh, you know, high amounts of money with the idea of developing it if it was in the green belt, unless you had some knowledge that, uh, in fact, it was going to become a place where you could build houses. So it seemed uh, like a, a very strange coincidence. And, um, you know, as been reported in, in multiple media outlets, this is something that um, there's something wrong with this. And it's really important to get to the bottom of it. Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister Steve Clark uh, denied that he leaked the government's plan to open the green belt to developers. Do you believe him? Well, I think if he didn't, um, then we need to find out who did. Um, you know, clearly someone inside of government uh, had some conversations, I think. Um, it doesn't make sense otherwise. Like, it's not rational to buy land that, uh, you know, can't be developed for development. So uh, we need to look into it and, and see if it purely is a coincidence um, to have all these properties purchased just before a decision is made that was not consulted with, with the public. And in fact, the government promised that it would never do it. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Tim Gray, Executive Director of Environmental Defense. They, along with Democracy Watch, are calling on the OPP to investigate whether the Ford government leaked any of this insider information to developers before these Greenbelt lands were opened up. Have provincial police responded to your request? No, we have not heard from them uh, as of yet, but it was only uh, you know, less than 48 hours ago, so I'm sure that uh, they have other things that they're working on. One question I have is, where was the due process? You know, where were the public input sessions to say, hey, should we open up these Greenbelt lands? That that never happened. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because the Greenbelt Act requires that the act be reviewed every 10 years. So that happened in 2015. Um, there was broad scale consultations across the province. Uh, David Crombie led those. Um, developers and municipalities came forward with lands that they said they wanted to take out. Um, none of those large parcels of land were removed. And in fact, the green mill was made larger. But that was at the uh, at the end of a couple of years of uh, public conversation. So, um, you know, the next time to have a conversation about whether the green belt should be expanded or not would have been in uh, 2025. So there was no conversations about this. And you know, as the tape by the beginning shows, uh, the premier is very clear that they were not going to do anything unilaterally at all. Many municipal leaders, including Hamilton's mayor, Burlington's mayor, Mississauga mayor, m- many municipal leaders across this province have said, listen, this housing plan is not going to work. In fact, it's going to cost us money. Do you get the sense it's going to be tweaked somehow? You know, I really hope so. I mean, we need to make sure that the province does not proceed with uh, removals from the green belt. But in addition, uh, their approach to planning in southern Ontario, which is to force sprawl and not do anything to significantly encourage or allow for densification, that is building new housing forms that are affordable, um, where people can walk to work, bike to work, where we have um, more access to transit. Um, we need to move in that direction, you know, enforcing a model of development on Southern Ontario that is from about 1948 makes no sense. It's environmentally, economically and socially uh, the wrong path and almost everywhere else in the world is going the opposite direction. So it, it's a huge mistake overall. Tim will be following along. Best of luck with us. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Tim Gray is the Executive Director of Environmental Defense. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Here in Ontario, recent reports said, you know what we should do to boost Ontario's tourism sectors have uh, cannabis tourism play a big part in that. 
So the question today in our poll question is, do you want to see a cannabis zone just like a beer zone or a beer tent at places like Tim Hortons Field or First Ontario Center? Or if you're going to a concert, do you want to see a cannabis zone? Two options for you. Yes, it's about time or no, this is a bad idea. Right now, 74% say no, this is a bad idea. Also got a text from a listener who says no to a cannabis zone, don't want secondhand cannabis smoke for others. I get that. Well, what if it's an, what if it's an edible zone? Think about that as well. That brings us to our next topic, and that is cannabis tourism, because some experts are saying that this is the next big thing. But the question is, how close or how far are we from realizing its full potential, if ever? Dr. Susan Dupe is a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Hospitality, Food, and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Dupe, good morning. How are you today? Hello, Rick. I'm well. Thank you for having me. How would you classify cannabis tourism? How would I classify cannabis tourism? Well, I would classify cannabis, firstly, um, as a resource for tourism um, that needs to be developed in a socially responsible way. And this is what the report is reporting to. We need to be socially responsible by creating the spaces in which people can consume cannabis responsibly. Um, so I guess to answer your question, I would classify cannabis tourism as a way to engage in so social responsibility. Um, the other thing I want to mention, too, is that cannabis tourism, I mean, it's a culmination of a variety of activities, events, places, people, right? These are all things that are part of the trip, part of the travel experience, part of the vacation that incorporates to some degree cannabis. And this can be cannabis production. Uh, we mentioned consumption, but also the purchase of cannabis as well. And under that category, we can include education, education around cannabis, which is something that's really lacking in Canada, um, but as well, uh, tourism for medical purposes, leisure purposes and business purposes, um, all relating uh, to cannabis tourism. So give us a, an example of a cannabis tourism experience or, or an excursion. Would this be like I've, I've seen the term bud and breakfast Would that follow under that umbrella? Absolutely. Um, there are all kinds of different experiences. Uh, but in breakfast is definitely uh, one experience. Um, there are also connections to wellness. Um, this is something that we're seeing in the United States, um, where ironically, cannabis is still illegal at the federal level. Um, and yet we see this burgeoning cannabis in the cannabis tourism industry, uh, wellness and spas retreats, right? Uh, wellness getaways. Um, there are specific resorts that are geared towards cannabis friendly um, experiences or not even cannabis friendly experiences but are just open um, to being cannabis friendly um, also um, in the report that you mentioned um, they brought up culinary experiences right so this is non-combustible forms of cannabis consumption um, and so there are all kinds of chefs um, chef jordan wagman for example um, very experienced, high-class chef it's who is bringing cannabis um, into um, cuisine. And so this is a very accessible way for folks to um, try cannabis for the first time even, right, um, with edibles and with beverages um, as well. So um, this has yet to come to fruition. But in, in the future, for example, we could have um, lounges that offer cannabis beverages. Um, people could go and purchase a cannabis beverage um, and then consume it on site uh, where they actually purchase that beverage, which is not something that's available now. 
Um, I also want to mention, um, I can go on and on and on, Rick, can you tell? Um, <laughs> I just want to m- mention, though, to agritourism um, and how important the grower is in this um, and that cannabis is an agricultural product. And so we're starting to see farm tours emerge, especially on the West Coast, Vancouver Island. Um, and Farmgate uh, as well presents opportunities for tourism. And Farmgate is where the producer um uh, is able to sell the product they grow at the site in which it was grown. So you as a consumer can go in essentially to the production facility to some extent and purchase cannabis at the site it was grown. Very similar to a wine tourism model, which is another interesting comparison. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Susan Dupay, a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. And we're talking about cannabis tourism and the burgeoning industry that it is. And I say burgeoning because Forbes says this is a $17 billion industry right now, at least in the U.S., but it also says that Canada can become the Napa Valley of cannabis tourism. The, it, it, it seems like there's a lot of untapped potential here. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yes. And I think that there is a lot of interest on the side of supply. There are a lot of entrepreneurial individuals, very creative, very innovative, uh, very passionate about bringing that education to the consumer um, and enabling these types of experiences. Um, but the one challenge that they focused, or sorry, that they've encountered, um, is that they are unable to uh, they are unable to take advantage of any commercial opportunities that revolve around consumption. Um, this is something that's been missed, I believe, uh, from where I stand with respect to the Cannabis Act. Um, and so consumption is a very important part of tourism, of course. And so what I think that needs to happen now is we need to start to see those regulations come into play. And this is going to be something at the provincial level um, first and then municipal level to follow. Um, but you mentioned zoning. That's exactly it, right? Um, I don't think it's fair to say to Canadians, all right, here you go, Canadians. Um, you can And tourists, right, people coming to Canada, you can go now and purchase cannabis um, legally at a store. However, good luck to you trying to find a place to smoke it, mm-hmm. especially if you can't smoke it or consume it in your private residence, which is largely largely the permission around where people can consume cannabis, especially in combustible form. So I think there's a responsibility here somewhere uh, to find some kind of uh, balance, some kind of regulation, whether they be permits for special, uh, special zones, um, like you're suggesting. Uh, they might be temporary permits, for example. Uh, maybe there might be concerts um, that could get these permits. Um, licensing as well, right, uh, for offering cannabis at events. There's all kinds of different um, potential. Um, but the other the other complication there, though, is that it's going to vary by provinces. So each province is going to have different mandates when it comes to consumption. So that makes things a little bit more complicated as well. Having said that, however, it's something that's very much uh, can be done. And this is something that I very much would like to, to research, trying to figure out a framework uh, for responsible cannabis consumption across the nation that not only benefits uh, tourism, but the Canadian citizenry more more broadly. Sounds like it's uh, ready to explode at any point. It's just uh, a matter of when. Dr. Dupay, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. I appreciate your time today. 
Okay, thank you so much for having me, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Susan Dupay, postdoctoral fellow in the School of Hospitality, Food, and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, what is the latest in the war in Ukraine? This has been going on for several months now. There is now new speculation that there's going to be a larger offensive from Russia in the new year. What does that look like? What is the impact of that going to be? Dr. Jane Bolden is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the Royal Military College and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Bolden, good morning. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, word is, as I mentioned, that Russia is getting ready for a major assault on Ukraine in the new year. What can we expect to see? Well, it's difficult to say exactly at this point, but the signs we're saying we're seeing are them digging in um, in terms of old-style trenches, lots of buildup of different locations along what we think of as roughly a front line. So it could be that what we're going to look at is a little more of the same of what we've been seeing, um, perhaps with a little more intensity. But we're really starting to see a pattern of a longer-term war of attrition, which is... Um, not necessarily good for either side, but just reflects the sense that both sides are pretty equally balanced at this moment. Russia has suffered some recent losses, losing control of uh, Kershaw, for example. How crucial is it going to be that the, you know, the first few months of this war in 2023? I think that some of the questions about the next few months are to what extent Ukraine will be undermined, for lack of a better word, by the constant destruction of its infrastructure and making civilian life on a day-to-day -day basis quite miserable. So there's that question, which so far looks to be, the answer looks to be that they're going to push through. They're getting lots of support from the West, continue to get lots of support from the West um, in terms of rebuilding or at least maintaining the infrastructure at a low level. So that factor is probably not going to change dramatically. The question is whether there's something Russia has that we don't know about yet that might in the next few months enable them to push through back through on some of those front lines where Ukraine has been successful in recent months. I think it's unlikely the kind of setup we're seeing does speak to a war of attrition rather than something that's set up, which is going to tell us there's going to be a breakthrough in a particular location. So I suspect what they're after is just maintenance. In other words, they want to come out in the spring no worse off, we're talking about the Russians here, than they are now. Um, that looks to be what, what's in play at the moment. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Jane Bolden, professor in the Department of Political Science at the Royal Military College. And we're talking about the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Has Russia's goal changed over the last number of months, or is it still to get as much land and as much territory as they can? I think there's some indication that it's changed somewhat in that they're not seeking to take the whole of Ukraine they're not assuming that what they're going to be able to do is to take the disputed territories in the south and the east. And instead, though, they are seeking to get as much territory as possible. But I think as a way of having a stronger position when this thing comes to an end, um, 
So yes, territorial gain. Yes, still looking to get a chunk of the disputed region, but not on the same scale as they had before. This is going to be the first full winter of this conflict. How will Ukraine's wintry weather play a part in what happens between now and the first anniversary of this war in February? Well, I think it's a major factor, and I think that's why we're seeing the kind of Russian preparations we're seeing, because they're getting ready to hunker down in position through a winter. We saw, even though the war started in late February, we did see the impact of weather there in that um, Russia struggled. You know, if we remember the long tank lines that were being seen by satellite, and yet a number of them didn't really move, some of that was attributable to um, winter weather conditions or even spring weather conditions with mud um, and unstable ground uh, being a factor in allowing troops to move around. Also, troop morale. This is probably a bigger impact for Russia than Ukraine in that we know Russian troops are not well supplied, not well looked after. And if you're hunkered down in a rough winter, that's going to play um, another role in their morale as well. Uh, we found out that Ukraine has received U.S. Patriot missiles. What impact could this have on the war? This is something that has the potential for a significant impact on the war. I mean, one of the things we've been seeing in the last couple of months in particular is the extent to which Russia is relying on drone and missile strikes. And so Patriot missiles are are going to be potentially able to help Ukraine shoot down even more, do even more in defensive terms against that kind of Russian onslaught. There's also a lot of discussion about the fact that, theoretically anyway, Russia should be running out of missiles um, and drones. And we haven't seen that indication in terms of the numbers they're using yet. We may um, yet see that in the next month or so. But in combination, those two factors may mean that Ukraine looks at um, fewer strikes getting through by air. It's going to be very interesting to watch as we approach that one-year anniversary in February. Dr. Bolden, thank you for your time today and enjoy the rest of your day. You as well. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Jane Bolden, professor in the Department of Political Science at the Royal Military College as we all continue to watch what happens in Ukraine. Uh, Canada, by the way, announcing $115 million uh, to Ukraine for repairing the country's electrical grid. And since this war began, Canada has contributed $2 billion to Ukraine. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A three-year grant worth $1 million from the Walder Foundation is allowing a University of Guelph-led project to continue cataloging insects in a global biodiversity hotspot. What is going on? Well, let's Let's dig into it, so to speak. Dr. Dirk Steinke is an associate director at the Center for Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Guelph and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Steinke, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Good. How are you doing? I'm good. So what is being done here with this cataloging or DNA barcoding of these insects? Well, DNA barcoding is a, is well, I shouldn't say fair. It's a fairly new um, um, technology. It's probably 20 years old by now in which we take a small portion of an organism's genome, really a small um, stretch of its DNA sequence, sequence it, 
get the information and catalog it because what it does it gives us a, a unique identifier for that particular species so we take that we record it we put it in the database together with all the other information we have about it certain species and then everybody in the world can access that and if they happen to find something unknown and they do the same sequencing procedure they can go back to the database and re um, identify what they found there based on DNA rather than looking in books and big volumes of information and, and looking at the species very closely. So is this being done just to share data everywhere? Is there a specific reason on why we want to see the DNA of all these insects? Um, it's not only to share the data, it's to actually do something that we've been doing for 200 years already. Um, it's to catalog every species that lives on this planet. And for the 200 years, so the early 190 years probably, we've been doing that in a traditional way by looking at specimens, writing long um, descriptions about them and what we observe about them. And it took us that long to come up with about 2 million species that are named, cataloged and everything else. But the true diversity out there is way higher. Um, estimates range from about 10 million species over 100 to some uh, microbiologists estimate up to a trillion species that we share with the earth with. So wow. we have a long ways to go. And if we do it at the old speed, that's not going to help us because we're losing so many at this point. How many species and insects have been cataloged already? Um as I said, about two million in the traditional way. We have we are um about 800 to 900,000 in um, with our method, the DNA barcoding method. Um, and that's the effort of about, I'd say, 18 years. So we're a little faster than, than the average there. So, and the plan is to get to that, uh, to get much higher that. So we usually count it in individuals, 10 million specimens representing probably a, another 200. No, another million, two million species. It's hard to tell when you just look at the specimens because very many of them, when you look at them, they look the same to you. Our, um, yeah. our, our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Dirk Steinka, Associate Director at the Center for Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Guelph. Where is this being done? Is it at the university? Is it somewhere else? Um, a lot of the work is done at the university, at the Center for Biodiversity Genomics, but we also have, obviously, we're not alone on the on Earth to do that. It's in, in the realm of the International Barcode of Life Project, which has about 30 countries that are members and about a thousand scientists that work on that. Because most of what it do, of the work is also done by actually going to places where there is a lot of biodiversity, like Costa Rica, and obtaining those specimens and bringing them back. But the, a lot of the laboratory work is done in Guelph, and actually DNA barcoding is an invention from that university. So it's a Canadian idea that took the, the world by storm. So it's probably pretty much every nation in the world does. Some scientists do DNA barcoding for many, many purposes. So are researchers, I'm just trying to paint a picture for our listeners and how they are going about doing this. Are they, are they climbing trees? Are they digging into soil? Are they going into the water? And, and then, you know, I guess capturing, for lack of a better term, uh, these species and then bringing them back to the lab? Um, the answer would be the simple answer would be yes. There's, there's people climbing trees. There's go people going diving um, down the ocean or in, in any kind of water body. But um, especially for this particular project we're talking about in Costa Rica, a lot of that is done in a proper, in a more simple way. 
So we're pitching what is called a malaise trap, which you can imagine looks like a small tent, but uh, it doesn't really have. And what it has is a is a, a nylon mesh in the middle where insects just encounter an obstacle flying and then they, they try to get out of it. And if you've ever been overnighting in a tent and watched insects in the tent, even though you probably don't want to have them there, you'll notice that they are trying to get out um, through the corners of your tent where you pitched it, where the poles are. So uh, this, this tent-like structure has an opening in one of those corners, which leads into a collecting bottle, which we then can take. The nice thing about these traps is you don't have to be around. You don't have to actively collect. You pitch the thing and you come every week to change the collecting bottle and come back and check whether your poles and everything are still upright. Um, and that collects a lot of the insect diversity for this particular project. So thousands and thousands of insects have already been cataloged that way. Really interesting stuff, Dr. Steinka. Really appreciate your time this morning as well to explain what you're doing and the impact it's going to have. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Dirk Steinka from the University of Guelph, part of a project that is ongoing led by the University of Guelph that is cataloging insects and, uh, as you can as you can tell, millions of other species in a global biodiversity hotspot. Uh, they're in Costa Rica at the moment and other places around the world. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Shooting in the real ocean, big storms, big swells, deep underwater operating the camera myself underwater, which I, I love to do, all of that was the necessary training to make this fantasy movie look real. Canadian James Cameron, the director of Avatar and the new Avatar, The Way of the Water, which opens tonight. And the question that many are asking themselves is, will it live up to the original in both popularity and box office success. Peter Lester is an associate professor of communication, pop culture, and film at Brock University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Peter, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Good morning to you. Let's uh, flip back the calendar several years and, and focus in on what was so appealing about the first Avatar. Was it the story? Was it the visual effects? Was it a bit of both? Uh, yeah, it's, it's always difficult to pinpoint, you know, why one film is successful and, and, and why another one is, is not. Um, but I think certainly in the case of that film, uh, the immediate thing we would, we would point to are the, the, the incredible technical achievements, which are, you know, unquestionably a big, a big draw. You know, an audience are shelling out money. They like to see that, that, that money um, uh, reflected on, on the screen. And when they hear that a lot of films, you know, a lot of money has been spent on a film, they like to see that. And, and James Cameron's films always provide that in terms of, um, you know, the sort of enormous spectacle. Um, you know, he's a noted perfectionist who has an uncanny uh, ability to really make films that I think um, connect with audiences. Um, I, I, the storyline, I would I'd certainly say, is, is probably secondary if we're, if we're looking to explain the success of that film. A lot of people were sort of saying sort of rehashing narratives found in other films. Um, <clears throat> Um, I suppose the optimist in me might might say that I that I like the idea that audiences are drawn to a storyline that's essentially an environmentalist story, you know, about indigenous resistance to, to corporate exploitation. But but I think it's not um, never quite so simple as that. And I think that the the, the tech the appeal of the of the spectacle and the incredible technical achievements are really what what, what bring people to, to to see a James Cameron film and, and explains the uh, success of the first film. The first Avatar debuted back in two thousand nine, and that opening weekend it made seventy seven million dollars, which, you know, back then was still a, a large amount of money. It still is now, but it's nowhere near the, you know, record-breaking amounts we're seeing these days. But it spent 
uh, seven weeks at number one. So it really had that lasting love from the audience. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what's, what's kind of interesting. You know, you hear that that, that opening uh, figure, and that seems, yeah, like you said, kind of small by, by today's standards, where, where so much emphasis is put on that, uh, you know, the importance of the opening weekend in terms of the, the, the box office results. And, and you're quite right with Avatar, the first film. It really, the way, the reason why it's, you know, often cited as, you know, depending on what metric you use, the, the highest grossing film of all time, um, you know, when you're not adjusting for inflation, is because of that longevity in, 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 in the um, uh, in the in the theaters. Um, so, so that's that, that's what I, I, I would be looking for similar um, uh, similar trends um, uh, this year if we're trying to gauge its um, its success in terms of uh, of the box office. It might it might do very well in its opening weekend. Um, the reason why uh, I think that might be the case is that that uh, apparently, from what I understand, this is Disney's widest release for a film in terms of the number of screens and theaters it's it's playing on. Um, a high, very high percentage of uh, of the uh, screens, the theaters that it's playing in, are, are offering it in premium formats, right? 3D, um, IMAX 3D, all those, those premium formats that have much higher uh, ticket prices. Um, uh, so there's, there's quite a number of reasons that that I think we can we can see both. Uh, I think we can count on a strong opening weekend, but 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 that longevity as well as sort of word of mouth builds and and audiences you know have a lot of curiosity about this film. I, I suspect. Um, that, that that will that will um, get people out of their uh, out of their homes in the comfort of their, their streaming options and, and, and go to the theater. Yeah, the original uh, Avatar earned two point nine two billion dollars globally. Um, this one, uh, Avatar Two: The Way of the Water, is expected to earn upwards of one hundred seventy five million dollars at the North American box office this weekend, which would unseed Top Gun Maverick for the top grossing opening weekend for a North American film. We've got about a minute. Whenever there's a sequel, it's always obviously compared to the original. So can it live up to the hype, or is it going to be unfair to expect Avatar 2 to be as good in both popularity and box office success as the original? Yeah, well, it's certainly a high a high bar to live up to the original. You know, the sort of unprecedented numbers of the uh, of the original film. Um, I, I, I and, and James Cameron himself has sort of gone on record in saying it, this film needs to be basically one of the highest grossing films of all time in order to justify the uh, amount of money and time and, and uh, you know spent on on the, on the production of the film in terms of its promotion. I would look for it to do very well. Um, and and the reason you mentioned overseas box office, this this film will do extraordinarily well in terms of overseas box office. Um, uh, China in particular, um, the, the Chinese market has just is, is exploded since 2009 when the first film um, um, was released. Not all Hollywood films get into to, 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 to China. Um, China is just opening up all of its um, um, theaters right now after a lengthy you know, COVID um, um, shutdown. Top Gun Maverick, the film you mentioned, didn't play in China, right? It's the highest grossing film so far, but it made most of its money, or at least half of its money, uh, domestically, where where in the case of the first Avatar and this and and this follow up, I, I think we can see um, enormous amounts of money made uh, primarily overseas. A very high percentage of its overall box office um, will be made uh, overseas. So I, I expect it to do very well, um, if not uh, unseating <laughs> uh, the first film in, in terms of the, uh, the the top spot in, in, in overall box office um, gross. We shall see. Peter, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy your no day. No problem. No problem. Thanks uh, for talking. That's Peter Lester, Associate Professor of Communication, Pop Culture, and Film at Brock University. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast.
podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.